what does it mean when a prolific user of a social media platform becomes its biggest shareholder? This week on Download This Show, the world's richest man, Elon Musk, snaps up a chunk of Twitter. What does this mean for the future of the site? Also on Twitter, an edit feature is officially on its way. But is it a good idea? Plus, we've all had them. Telstra is finally stepping up to stop scam texts. But will it work? This and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Ray Johnston and welcome to Download This Show. It is a new episode of Download This Show. Ray Johnston here filling in for Mark Fennell. And it is a pleasure to welcome our guests for today. We have Seamus Byrne, Head of Content at Byteside. Welcome back to the show, Seamus. Good to be here, Ray. And we have Emily Vandenagel, who is the Social Media Lecturer at Monash University. Welcome back, Emily. Thanks for having me, Ray. It's a pleasure. Now, kicking things off, we have serial tweeter Elon Musk. He has just spent $2.89 billion, which is an unfathomable amount of money, to become Twitter's biggest shareholder. Emily, what does it mean for Elon to be the biggest shareholder? What, what kind of power does that give him? Well, interestingly, um, he's declined a seat on the Twitter board, which means that he is part of Twitter in a, in that shareholder sense, but not necessarily going to the meetings and you know and and having that kind of direct input. It definitely reveals that he has a really solid interest in Twitter. He thinks those conversations are important, uh, and it's it's not hard to think that he wants to have some kind of say in how they all go down. With him being the biggest shareholder now, where does this leave Jack Dorsey, the the co-founder? He's kind of who you think of when you think about Twitter, Seamus. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I think Jack Dorsey's holding is only like, I think it's less than 3% of the company. So, you know, the fact that he's no longer CEO either really does mean that Elon holds a far greater balance of power within you know the, the overall structure and it needs to be said that when Elon bought uh, these shares and he sort of steadily accumulated the shares since January apparently uh, and even you know a week or so before he it was it was announced that he was holding over nine percent uh, of the company he was even you know tweeting about the idea that maybe I'll start my own social media company. I mean, this total kind of troll attitude he has to the entire capitalist system means that you know he's kind of spending billions on one hand, he's he's giving Twitter crap on the other hand, and and the price of the stock jumped by over 20% when wow. it was revealed that he'd bought that deeply into the company, which kind of means right now that even outside of his 9%, he has essentially demonstrated to every shareholder of Twitter that by him being a part of the company in that sort of sense of ownership, uh, that people have kind of put a bit more faith in the idea that maybe things are going to push ahead, change. Twitter has been a bit stagnant for a while. And so, you know, if Elon got bored and decided to sell his shares, 
it's very likely that the price of the stock would drop. So he does have an incredibly big influence right now and in some ways almost more power because he didn't join the board because if he was on the board, he'd have to shut up a bit more. (laughs) So what is he actually getting out of this? Is it a power thing? Is Twitter going to make him richer, Emily? Well, he certainly signalled that he thinks Twitter is important. That is something that he's done with with spending that amount of money and with also having um, now, you know, the, the biggest stake uh, monetarily in this platform. Interesting that he before has tweeted that um, for him, the way he sees this platform is that it serves as a de facto public town square. So it, what it means for somebody in the commercial sphere to want to control a public town square or at least have a say in the direction of the platform, I think has very interesting implications. We know that for a big platform like Twitter, it has to, or it at least has decided to, adhere to commercial instead of civic priorities. And there's, I think, a very tricky thing that Twitter has to do when it facilitates so much public discussion, but it's not a public service. That is a very good point. And I do want to talk a little bit about how Elon actually uses Twitter himself and what kind of impacts that has. You know, we, we do talk a lot about how he tweets a lot, but his tweets have a legitimate impact on his businesses, on other people's businesses. But then on the other hand, he, he uses it for trolling completely. Seamus, what's your perspective on how he uses Twitter? I mean, he, you know, I guess ever since Donald Trump was removed from the platform, Elon is probably the most influential troll that exists on Twitter. You know, he can move stocks with single tweets. He can literally sort of say, oh, thinking about buying something and that stock will move. Um, You know, it's got such a real-time impact. And I think that's kind of that distinction of Twitter compared to a lot of other social media platforms. You know, if if you're on Facebook and you're scrolling through your feed there, so often what you're seeing could be days old just because of the way their algorithm works, whereas Twitter is about that kind of real-time impact. And I think Elon absolutely loves that ability to do that. You know, I I think in all the middle of all the crazy GameStop, uh, meme stock kind of stuff back in early 2021, or was it 2020? I don't even know anymore. Time's a construct, Um, Seamus. It doesn't exist anymore. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so, you know, he tweeted game stonk and yeah literally i think just the word game stonk and of course it kind of pushed that whole thing forward yet again um you know all the crypto stuff that he tweets about you know he can literally just be like i'm i'm interested in in this given thing and he gets it out there and makes people get excited about it i think few people almost kind of like the steve jobs of social media even more so than his whole you know sort of the the Tesla company and SpaceX and all those things that he owns, there's no question that he has a genius behind what he does, but that sort of public facing side of it and and the idea that him sitting there on his phone having a random thought can have such influence across people who are huge fans of his um, is yeah really outsized. And I think that's part of why, yeah, he does. He loves the platform in that sense. Uh, but, I mean, over the weekend alone, he just kind of started making so many tweets, giving crap to Twitter and its board. You know, it, it really struck me that him saying no to that seat on the board, it's, it's almost so much easier to give the company a hard time if you don't have to sit down and look those people in the face at a board meeting. 
Emily, I'm interested to hear your perspective on how Elon uses Twitter as well. What stands out about the way he is utilising the platform above other users there? See, the thing is, I I don't agree that he is simply uh, having a random thought. I'm I'm very sceptical of the idea that this man, the, the richest person in the world, is able is is just pulling his phone out of his pocket and that there's very little time or interference between him having a thought and that going to a platform where the, these thoughts are going to be seen by millions of people. I think this, this is a strategy. He wants to look as though um, he is a person who says what he thinks and um, is really unfiltered because we know that that kind of approach to public discourse is really popular. I mean, this is something that that people were even saying that they liked about Donald Trump, you know, oh, oh, he just says whatever he's feeling for better or worse. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) usually worse. And, you know, this, I, I really feel like this, this approach to Twitter is something that is strategic and is trying to is trying to at least uh, get you to think that when you hear from Elon Musk, he's being very unfiltered about what his perspectives are. I think he knows what he's doing. I don't know if that makes it feel worse or not, if, if he's actually doing it with that extra mindfulness attached to the mm-hmm. craziness. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if that's worse or better. <laughs> So let's give him the the benefit of the doubt that he does know exactly what he's doing. This is all incredibly calculated. What kind of changes do we think he might want to make to Twitter, Emily? Well, we have to think about the the way, uh, the purpose of Elon Musk buying this stake in, in Twitter. If he has more control in, in one way or another, you know, behind the scenes or um, with his own Twitter account, there's more power that he has now over a conversation that is seen and understood by millions. And, you know, like Seamus is saying, he only has to tweet about thinking about a particular purchase before actual change happens in the stock markets and in the world. So we've got to we, I, th- I think we need to um, at least guess that Elon Musk wants Twitter to have conversations that are positive about Elon Musk and the things that he <laughs> owns, right? So whatever's going to help him do that, I think we, we might see in coming months. And we did see him tweeting about things like free speech and wanting to make sure that Twitter was a platform for free speech. Seamus, do you think that he will make dramatic changes to the platform or just kind of sit back and let it be? Um, yeah, I, I think the fact that he did reject the board seat means he will not be sitting back. You know, a big part of uh, being tied to the board is that he becomes, you know, uh, a financial response, you know, financially responsible for the overall outcomes of the company, uh, you know, fiduciary responsibilities, uh, you know, that he can't conduct himself in the way that he most likes to, (laughs) uh, which is a big part of, I think, why they offered him the board seat in the first place. Even the idea that being on the board might have meant he would have to uh, agree to not continue to increase his stake in the company uh, beyond, I think, 14.9% or something like that, that, you know, that I think he wants all options on the table. And 
Uh, he's been tweeting about things like, yeah, there's like some actually some really great ideas in the mix of the crazy. And one is that I think is great is the idea of saying that the whole Twitter blue system, which is the subscription model, um, that I think he would like to see more emphasis put on that so that the company could start to you know, build a better recurring revenue model. Um, things like letting somebody sign up and that, if you sign up, you get an authentication mark and it could be a way to, you know, start to encourage people to, you know, if you want that check mark, that here's a way to do it, that you can prove who you are, you can pay to have your annual subscription to the service and that could potentially start to, you know, reduce uh, how many just, you know, random bot accounts are always causing problems if you start to encourage more people to actually start to subscribe to it as a service. Uh, he's also been talking about the edit button, uh, which of course is an eternal uh, talking point, but, you know, there's kind of that idea. Uh, I think he also, I think the freedom of speech thing, the, the biggest kind of challenge would be if he started to talk about, you know, whether uh, Trump should be allowed back on the platform because, you know, I think... That would be the kind of thing, I think, as a free speech absolutist, he would be someone who would probably be starting to advocate for the idea that uh, even, you know, the the worst people who operate with bad faith should still be allowed to operate on any platform they like. Uh, questions like that are going to you know, potentially be a big issue for Twitter based on its you know, previous positions on how to manage that kind of thing. Download this show is what you're listening to. It's your guide to the week in media, technology and culture and still on Twitter. We did mention it for a second there. The ability to edit your tweets is coming, apparently. It has absolutely been confirmed. Emily, how would an edit button work on Twitter? I feel like in a, hopefully in a similar way to other platforms where not only can you, of course, um, you know, do a tweet, there's a, there should be a little, a little sub button on the um, interface allowing you to go back in, change what you need to and repost, right? Um, I think the, what Twitter needs to do is just have some transparency around that, um, is, is, if somebody's edited a tweet, whether it's for grammar or um, the wrong link or something else, you know, forgot to attach attachment, uh, it should just say that, that this is an edited tweet. You should be able to see the original. Um, this is something other platforms do. And it's surprisingly uncontroversial on a number <laughs> of other platforms, including Instagram and Reddit. Uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It is what we see on other platforms. So, you know, I, I feel like this is a feature that could be very useful, Seamus. Um, look, I do have issues with it in, in the sense of what sort of Twitter has set itself apart as in some regards compared to other social networks. And so, you know, that is that sort of real-time quality to the way that it works. My, my feeling is definitely there should be some kind of edit option available. And, you know, in my mind, I feel like saying, well, you could time limit it so that, you know, maybe it's after the first five minutes or 10 minutes or something that you can no longer edit it in some way to try to maintain that, you know, that just traditional sense of, Twitter being quite a clear record of you know, of events and things, the whole kind of retweet function would potentially mean that somebody could try to, you know, change what everybody was saying in the process of retweeting their original message um, by, you know, changing it wildly. Um, so 
but of course, you know, those kinds of risks are always like, well, they're going to be the edge cases of, you know, weird things happening. Um, but it's it's just one of those things that almost feels like there's a, you know, a, a clear tradition to what people think Twitter is, that it would be interesting to see if that got abused or not. But I totally think that, yeah, that just putting some some simple limits around the edges of it would mean you're not really losing anything. And for that 99% of wishes for editing, which really is just the typo, <laughs> or I forgot to attach the image that, you know, that I've explained the image in the tweet. Um, you know, I've never done these things myself. I mean, you know, it must be other people. Uh, but I hear <laughs> that that's a, a really good reason for, for wanting to edit things. I can imagine a future in which my entire timeline is just retweets that have been edited to completely change their meaning and people go to my profile and go like, ooh, did you did you mean to retweet this version or the previous version? <laughs> yes. Are they going to click through on the edit button to check up on me or are they just going to assume I'm a terrible person? But is that the worst that can happen here, Emily? How how could this be misused other than people maliciously going in and editing tweets once they become popular? Oh, certainly there is potential for pranking and joking and tricking. Um, I, I'm expecting to when inevitably the, the edit button becomes a reality, I am expecting to see several Rick Rolls and, uh, and, and other <laughs> kinds of mischief unfold. And of course, that can be um, you know, take re really ramped up to the level of harassment and misinformation that is already such a challenge for these platforms. But I think that we already know what it's going to be like when something is retweeted or, or somebody replies and all of a sudden the response is, has changed because we don't have an edit button on Twitter, but we do have a delete button. And there is a lot that happens in between that space of tweeting, deleting. Um, and, you know, if, if you retweet something that gets deleted, we already know that, that that can be, if you're quoting the tweet that's disappeared, that's already a kind of interruption. And we grapple with that all the time. I feel like the edit button does introduce an extra layer that people need to be mindful of, that it's, an, it's a possibility that a tweet has been edited but if we can work out what to do with a vanished tweet, we can work out what to do with an edited one. You are listening to Download This Show. I'm Ray Johnston filling in for Mark Fennell and I am joined by Seamus Byrne, Head of Content at Byteside and Emily Vandenagel, Social Media Lecturer at Monash University. And we've all gotten them. Those terrible texts imitating missed package deliveries or missed calls or the ATO, and they're actually scams. They've been happening for years, and Telstra is finally doing something about them. What is Telstra doing, Seamus? Uh, so in November last year, uh, the federal government actually gave telcos more permission to uh, you know, just monitor that little bit of extra information that is around, uh, you know, short messages, SMSs, uh, in order to be able to, you know, identify for more of these scam and spam type messages. And so 
over the past few months, Telstra had been testing internally and said they'd run tests with a, a couple of thousand internal people uh, to see if these filters were going to work effectively. And now they've released it across their entire mobile network so that you will essentially have a lot of those messages automatically filtered out. You know, the, looking for those signatures, looking for your know, bulk messaging that might all sort of go out very quickly one after the other that have much the same message. That sort of processing that, again, in the past, they didn't necessarily have the permission they needed to be able to watch for those extra bits of detail that would help them to identify whether or not this particular message was going to be malicious or not. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, my personal experience so far, I, I am on the Telstra network, is that I haven't been pinged by Ooh. any of those in the last week and I was probably getting one or two of them every day for a while there. So maybe it is working. Uh, that's, filters for scam messages have been in place for a while across you know, many different networks, but they're usually looking for specific words that go out in the texts. And that's why you so often get those texts where there's a slight misspelling or, or a gap where it's not meant to be to work its way around the filter. Emily, won't scammers simply find another way to work around this kind of filter as well? It's always a, an, a race, isn't it? There's, there, there's a, a move from Telstra or from a technology company. There's another move from scammers. I don't think this is the end of, um, of scam text messages, but I, I feel like I have noticed that lately they have been ramping up. You know, this is something that, that I hear, you know, on Twitter um, and from my own experience of having a mobile phone. It's, it'll be interesting. I think maybe, maybe we've just had telcos lagging behind a little bit and Telstra's worked out a slightly larger step than usual to try to get those messages out of your text inbox. Stepping back a bit with bigger picture on this, why are these scam texts such a big problem? Don't we all just know that they're scams or spam and, and just ignore them, Seamus? Um, look, yeah, I, I think a really big part of this is that idea that, you know, that the onus shouldn't always fall on the end user to have to deal with every potential spam message, scam message, you know, needing to have our radar eternally switched on to stop horrible things from, you know, hitting us in the face. So I think when the volume of these increased, and I think part of it was around a time when, you know, essentially some people started, you know, scammers started testing a new angle um, on this sort of thing, which is was basically realising we're all getting so many more packages, you know, <laughs> pandemic process of getting deliveries, started to open that, that idea of going, hey, what if we send fake package type notifications because we've all had those messages and needed to click on a tracking uh, link at some stage. But then they were putting a you know, malicious package into that and I think particularly targeting Android phones for a while there where it would, if you clicked it, it would try to install uh, a package onto your phone that would both use your phone to continue distributing these kinds of messages. And so therefore, when your friend gets that next message because they've used your contact list, it looks like it might have come from someone they knew, um, which then, you know, helps to get people to accidentally click on links if they think they know who sent it to them. Uh, but it would also start doing things like, you know, keystroke logging or try to capture your, you know, personal credit card information and things like that, personal details off your phone. So it really was sort of an angle that 
hadn't necessarily been you know seen all that often before and it really did then you know make this a more prolific problem so yeah i think that's where it really had seemed to escalate during 2021 in particular uh and apparently even before this they were able to filter some of it but again when it's coming from known phone numbers and all those kinds of elements it's hard to filter everything without ultimately ending up needing to block phone numbers that you actually want to be receiving calls from. So, you know, it was a tricky situation. So what should we be doing if we get one of these texts? Is there a place that we should be calling? Should we be letting everyone know about it, Emily? Well, hopefully on everybody's phone, there's a there's a little button that you can hit that says this is spam. Don't, don't contact me from this number again. Um, but like you're suggesting, this does put the onus on the end user of a phone. And it's look, it's true that most of us can spot a spam text message. But you're right, in terms of the way that spammers and scammers have caught up with what's going on at the moment, there is a, an increased number of automated text messages that we do receive in on our, you know, on our SMS inboxes. And this is mostly stuff that is quite useful for us. For example, you know, appointment reminders or package notifications. Um, and it's something I think that, that scammers have noticed is, is an uptick. We're not simply texting um, just people that we know. We're receiving increasing amounts of text messages from automated systems. Most of them are useful. These ones obviously have um, tapped into that usefulness and then decided to imitate the kind of package notification that we are increasingly getting. So really, you know, these, these kinds of text messages are a way that we can see our changing texting landscape unfold as it happens. Um, like, you're, like you're saying though, Ray, what kind of interference a technology company or a telco can have here uh, is yet to be seen. Can they stop all of the the spam texts? Probably not. But it is at least something that they're putting resources into better identification. Sounds like for Seamus, it's already working quite well. And what if I'm not with Telstra? Am I still protected in some way, Seamus? Uh, yeah, so at the moment, uh, not really, uh, like there's probably an element here of that sort of that contact list attack might mean that other people will start to see a few less of these messages if someone else in their, you know, contact list network hasn't been hit by it and therefore is then, you know, further distributing some of these messages. But I would expect that the other telcos uh, would have announcements coming up pretty soon that, you know, I'm sure they've been working on similar things quietly in the background since those laws were changed late last year. Um, a really interesting note, though, as well, is for people who absolutely actually do worry about things like going, I don't want any of anything coming to my phone monitored in any way and don't want to be part of this, that Telstra has included an opt-out system so that you can actually text a phone number to say that you want to opt out of the filter and you can switch it back on if you suddenly realise that, oh, they were blocking 10 messages a day from my phone <laughs> that I didn't want to ever see. Let me get back in, please. Uh, but it's nice to know that the option is there. <laughs> Well, that is all that we have time for on the show today. Thank you so much, Emily Vandenagel, social media lecturer at Monash University. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Ray. And thank you to Seamus Byrne, head of content at Byteside. Great chatting with you as well. Thanks, Ray.
Now, if you enjoyed the show, please be sure to leave a review on whatever podcasting platform you use. I'm Ray Johnston, and thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show. Download This Show.